0: Hey Two Cities family, Pastor Kyle here. It's been an incredible summer and a very different summer. We started with online only services this summer. Then at the end of June, we went to a Thursday night service. The response has been incredible. So for the last 10 weeks, we've been coming together on Thursday night, but I want you to know this is our last week with a Thursday night service. If you come next week on Thursday, September 10th to the building, some of you may, uh, no one's gonna be here. That's because on September 13th, Sunday, September 13th, we are fully reopening and relaunching and regathering the people in three services. We're gonna have two in the morning, one at night, full kids ministry, and uh, and I'm really excited. In fact, that Sunday, we're gonna be launching into the book of Exodus and spending our fall in that book. And in preparation today, you're gonna to get to hear from Pastor uh, Spencer Martin. And uh, he's he's our college pastor. And what he's going to do in in preparation for us going into the book of Exodus, he's going to be speaking out of Hebrews 3 on the life of Moses. And so would you put your hands together as Spencer comes to bring us God's Word?
1: All right, all right. Well, it is great to be with you, Two Cities Church, as Pastor Kyle shared. Uh, My name is Spencer. I'm the college pastor here. And as a lot of you may know, Many of our college students are back, at least for now, Um, and and I'm so excited about this. There are so many reasons why I love college ministry, but probably the main reason is that college is such a crucial time for spiritual growth and development. I know that for so many of you, you, you look back on your college experience and you are just so thankful. Many of you came to Christ in college. In college, you got plugged into a healthy church, you got plugged into community, and you just grew like a weed during that season of your life. Now, I know there are also many of you who look back on college, and it was just really a dark season. When you look, on, when you look back on college, you just think back of a lot of, you know, things you would have done differently. You have a lot of regret. You had to learn a lot of things the hard way. And then there are some of you who are somewhere in the middle. You know, you, there were a lot of things that you would have done differently, but there's also a lot that you are thankful for. What we desire here at Two Cities Church is to create environments for college students to flourish. The Campus Crusade for Christ has a slogan called, it says, Win, Build, Send. And I love that slogan. I wanted it to be our Two Cities College slogan, but I was told that I couldn't because of copyright. But that is our desire. We want to win students to Christ We want to be sharing the gospel with students on college campuses. We want as many students as possible in Winston-Salem to have chances to hear the gospel and respond. We want to build. We want to invest in our college students. We want to disciple them. We want to encourage them. We want to equip them. We desire for college students to become members of our church, to serve here, to come to community groups, And if you are a college student or if you know a college student, starting next Thursday, we're going to have our first college community group gathering of the semester. We're going to meet in the the, the new Two Cities office space at 7 p.m. And we would love for you to come with us. And so if you're a college student, if you're here, if you're watching us online, I want you to know that there is a place for you here. That we don't want anything from you, but we want a lot of things for you. And that we want your college experience to be a time where you grow and flourish in a lot of ways that you never have. And so I just want to take a second to pray for our college students as they begin this semester with just a lot of unknowns and uncertainty. And so let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the college students in this room and for those who are watching online. I pray that this semester, despite the uniqueness of it, that it would be a great time for spiritual growth. Lord, I pray for the freshmen specifically that are here in Winston-Salem. They've got a lot of freedom for the first time. I pray that they would get plugged into Christian community, that they would get plugged in here at Two Cities or at another faithful gospel preaching church in the city. And Lord, I pray that many students in this city who do not know you right now would hear the gospel this semester and would know you by the time Christmas comes around. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, starting this fall, starting next week, we are going to be in a series on the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus is the story of God's people moving forward. And I really think that this series is coming at a perfect time because I think that we as a church, we need to move forward. And many of you individually, you need to move forward as well. I think that for almost all of us in some way or another, life came to a screeching halt in March. The, the wedding that you were looking forward to changed or was canceled or they eloped. The, the conference that you were looking forward to got canceled. Your school year was cut short. The next big thing that you were looking forward to was, was put on hold. We have all had to press pause on so many different areas of our lives. And the future has been fuzzy. I know that many of you probably remember elementary school playing the game called Dizzy Bat. And so you basically, if you don't remember. The, the game is where you, you put your head on a baseball bat, and you spin around 10 times, and then you sort of get your bearings a little bit, and then, and then you, you run, and you race the person beside you. I really feel like that's how a lot of us feel right now. You know, since March, COVID has caused a lot of our lives to feel dizzy, uncertain. But it is now September. The fall is almost here. The dizziness is wearing off. It is time for so many of you to restart your engines. It is time for so many of you to go. It's time for so many of you to move forward. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those and flip to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, that's where we're going to be today. So this is one of the many passages in the New Testament that references Moses and the people of Israel. And so this passage is gonna be leading us up to our series in Exodus. And so what you're gonna see in this passage is there's gonna be three things that you need to do in order to move forward. Now, before we get there, I need to lay a little bit of context down. So the book of Hebrews is written to believers. And what the author is doing in this book is he is encouraging the Hebrews to persevere. He is encouraging them to not abandon Christ, and the believers who were addressed in Hebrews, they would have been very aware of Moses in the Old Testament. As we're going to see in the next couple of weeks and months, Moses was just a stud. I mean, in so many ways, I mean, he wasn't perfect, but in so many ways, he was just an incredible man of faith. But one of the things that the author of Hebrews is going to do here is he's going to try to appeal to them that Christ is much greater than Moses. And so the passage of Hebrews is going to be referencing Moses and the people of Israel a lot. And so for the passage that I read to make sense, um, I've got to sort of explain something here. So so what, what you see in Exodus is that Moses, he leads the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he leads them through the Red Sea. And, you know, as the Egyptian army is chasing them, they end up getting swallowed by the sea. And if you grew up in church, you sang songs about this. You know, the Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go song. Um, and so what ends up happening is the people of Israel end up in the wilderness. And it doesn't take long at all for the people of Israel to start grumbling and complaining. And I know church folk grumbling and complaining. Hard to believe. But what ends up happening is that they're in the wilderness and Moses, he leads them up to the promised land. And God tells Moses, he says, Moses, I have this land for you. It's like, this land is going to be a place for your rest. Like it's flowing with milk and honey. You're going to find safety here. And basically what ends up happening is the people of Israel begin to doubt God. They basically say, you know, I don't think that God is strong enough to lead us into this land where these people are, because they're stronger than we are, and so God basically, he's like, you know, you guys don't, th- you guys don't think that I'm strong enough. You don't think that I'm able to lead you into this promised land. Fine then, wander. In fact, none of you, except Caleb and Joshua, none of you are actually going to enter the promised land. And so that's the context for Hebrews three. Uh, which is where we're going to read today. So I'm going to read most of this passage, and then we'll talk about it. Um, So as we read this, I want you to to just keep in mind that the author is appealing to the believers to persevere and to move forward. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house? For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And so now we're going to go down to verse ten. So verses seven through or verse seven, verses seven through eleven are referencing Psalm 95, and Psalm 95 references the people of Israel, like we just talked about Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so there's there's so many things to see in this passage. But the first thing that I want to point out is that in order for you to move forward, you must be in community. In order for you to move forward in the Christian life, you must be in community. Look back with me at verse 12. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so what the author is saying here is he's saying some of you are at risk of falling away. But what you need to do in, to prevent that is to exhort one another. Well, what does it mean to exhort someone? The word exhort in this passage literally means to cheer, to encourage, and to comfort. Now, you obviously can't encourage someone very well if you're not with them. And vice versa, they can't encourage you very well if you're not with them. It is incred- we know this. It is incredibly difficult to flourish spiritually spiritually. If you are in isolation, we were not designed to be isolated. And I think you've heard this example before, but um, Castaway, the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks. If you haven't seen the movie, basically what happens in this movie is that Tom Hanks or the Tom Hanks character is stranded on an island for like four years. And Tom Hanks is so lonely and so isolated that he ends up taking a Wilson's Sporting Good volleyball that he has and naming it Wilson, and talking to the volleyball throughout the movie. He is so lonely and so isolated. He desires community so much that he ends up talking to a volleyball. And you know, this is why for the last six months for so many of us have been so difficult because we have been forced to be so much more isolated than normal. And I wanna take us to Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. You don't have to flip there. It's gonna be on the screen. It says this, this, this passage speaks to community so clearly. It says, "And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another." And so, here the, the the author of Hebrews says, "You need to encourage each other. You need to stir each other up to love and good works, but in order for you to do that, you you must meet together. You cannot neglect to meet together." Now this should go without saying, but we have not been gathering on Thursday nights here for the last however many weeks for no reason. We are not going to going back to Sunday Sunday services in ten days just because we want something to do on the weekends. You know, you'll hear people say, "Well, you know, do you do you guys really have to gather? Is church really essential?" Well, the response to that is a church, by definition, is an assembly. The, the Greek word for church literally means the assembly of God's people. And so, well, why is it important for the church to gather? It's because the scriptures are clear that we should gather. It says, do not neglect to meet together because meeting together will allow for you to encourage one another. And as we see in Hebrews three, it will, let you, it will allow you to keep fellow Christians from falling away. And so the first thing we see is that in order to move forward, you must be in community. The second thing we see is that in order to move forward, you must take sin seriously because it is deceitful. We're going to spend a lot of time here because this is such an important thing. You must take sin seriously because it is deceitful. Many of you want to move forward in the Christian life. But in order for you to do that, you must address your sin and you need to start taking it more seriously. Look back with me at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I want to spend some time here. Um, if you grew up in church, You probably heard a ton of different definitions of sin, you know, and sin is, sin's a really difficult topic to sort of define because it takes the whole Bible to sort of tell us what sin is. But you've heard that sin is missing the mark or sin is falling short of the glory of God or sin is rejecting God's law. And all those definitions are pretty good, but I came across a definition a couple years ago that I just love. It's it's from a man named Cornelius Plantinga. He's a theologian, philosopher, just a really smart guy. And he said this, he said, Sin is any act, any thought, desire, emotion, word, or deed, or its particular absence that displeases God and deserves blame. Now, this definition has always been just incredibly convicting for me because I feel like it makes it so clear how difficult it is for us to not sin. Because not only is he saying that sin is any act, any thought, any desire that you have that's displeasing to God, but sin can actually be the lack of the appropriate desire. And so what that means is that you can come across a person in need and you cannot feel compassion for them, and that in itself can be sin, Verse 12 says, if you do not take care that your heart will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I know that Pastor Kyle pretty often will, will use the defi- or he'll say that, you know, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to sit, keep you longer than you want to stay, charge you more than you want to pay. And every time I hear that quote, I'm just like, yep, that, that is correct. Sin is so deceitful. And I wrote down five ways that sin lies to you and is deceitful. And so we're going to walk through those. Number one is sin is dishonest in its promises. Sin is dishonest in its promises. Sin is deceitful in that it will promise you freedom, but it will end up enslaving you. Sin will promise you pleasure, but it's going to end up in you being miserable. Sin will promise you financial security and stability, but it will lead you to being dishonest with your money. Sin is dishonest in its promises. The second point is that sin hides its consequences. Sin hides its consequences. I really think that if we had the ability to look into the future and just see the effects that our sin would have, we would not sin to the extent that we do. If you had the ability to look into the future and see the wreckage that your sin might cause yourself or your spouse or your kids or your family, you would be so much more careful to avoid it. Sin hides its consequences. The third thing is that sin tells you your actions are okay because others are doing it. Sin tells you that your actions are okay because others are doing it. We love to justify our sin. We love to say things like, well, you know, I know that my classmates are cheating on this exam and they seem to be getting away with it. So, so why can't I do this? Or you might say, well, my coworkers are being a little bit dishonest and nobody seems to be catching them for it. So why can't I cut corners too? Or we might say, well, well everyone else is cohabitating and, and we get married in six months and it's a lot more common now and it makes a lot of sense financially. So what's the big deal? Or you might say, well, you know, I know that everybody else at this little get together is having a little bit too much to drink. So, but, so why can't I? You see, this is how sin is deceitful. We justify our sin because others are doing it. And I just want to throw this in there. College students, high school students, middle school students, I want you to listen to this. I heard someone say this back in college and it was so powerful for me. Your friends are your future you. And what that means is you're basically going to become an average of your five closest friends. And so if your five closest friends are waking up hungover on Sunday morning, then unfortunately, you're probably going to be right there with them. But if your five closest friends Are just doing their best to walk with Christ, to be faithful to Him. If your five best friends are just trying as hard as they can to get plugged into Christian community, then you're probably going to be right there with them as well. Your friends are your future you. Next point is number four sin is deceitful in the names that it wears. Sin is deceitful in the names that it wears. It's not gossip. It's just sharing what you heard about somebody. You know, it's not drunkenness. It's just having a little bit too much to drink. It's not addiction. It's just a bad habit. It's not greed. It's just being financially conservative or being a good steward. It's not lying. It's just being a little bit dishonest or telling a white lie. It's not, I'm addicted to pornography. It's, I struggle with lust. It's not I have an anger problem. It's I'm just a little irritable, or I had a long day. You know, I deserve to be a little irritated right now. I've heard someone say before that that you can call garlic perfume if you want to, but it's still going to stink. And that's the same idea we see here. Sin is deceitful in the names it wears. Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous pastor in England in the 19, 19th century, um, he said this. He said, men would not talk of their sins as such little things unless they loved them so dearly. Sin is deceitful in the names that it wears. And then the last point, and this is, I think this is clearly the most important point, is that sin tells you that you can manage it. Sin tells you that you can manage it. You know, every once in a while, you'll be scrolling on Facebook or something, and you'll see an article, or you'll be watching the news, and you'll see a story about somebody who just does just something, just, just a gross, terrible sin. And, and, you know, you'll see that, and, and, you'll, and you'll say to yourself, or you'll say to somebody else, you know, I just don't, ha- I just don't understand how anyone could do something so terrible. Like, I could never do something like that. Well, actually, yes, you could. Because sin always escalates. Sin always escalates. Every single one of us in here have impulses and desires that go against God's good and right plan for our lives. And what you do with those impulses, you either feed or indulge those impulses or you starve them. And when we give ourselves over to sin, our hearts are hardened. And like it says in verse 13, or like it says in verse 13, and sin escalates. I've heard someone use this example before. You know, there was a show in the 1990s called When Animals Attack. Um, I've heard that the new Netflix documentary Tiger King has some similarities, but I'm sure none of you know anything about that. But, but basically, what, basically what happens in, in this show is that these people... They have these exotic animals. A lot of times it's like a tiger. And they get these tigers when they're babies. And they raise these tigers. And they teach them to sit. And they teach them to jump through hoops. And they teach them to roll over. And they cuddle with them. And they take pictures with them and put it on Instagram. And the tiger grows and grows and grows. And, you know, before you know it, you've got an adult tiger. And then every once in a while... One of those well-trained tigers ends up just snapping and bites somebody's arm off. And the crazy thing about this is when something like that happens, a lot of times they'll interview the owners and the owners will just be like, you know, I've just had him since he was a little baby. Like since he was a little cub, I've had this tiger. I just could never, I just, I can't believe he would do such a thing. And when you see this, you're just like, seriously, it's like, this is a tiger Like it bites things. Like when it's not biting things, it's thinking of biting things. Like, and, and this is exactly how sin works. Sin tells you, you don't actually have to put this sin to death. You can just train it. Or sin says, or sin convinces you that you it's just your cute little pet and you can cuddle with it and you've got it under control. Sin gets you to buy into the lie that you have mastered sin, when in reality, it has mastered you. Charles Spurgeon, again, he says this. He says, Sin will flatter a man with the notion that he can go just so far and no farther and retreat with ease. He can tread the verge of crime and yet be innocent. Another person would be in great danger. But this self-satisfied fool thinks that he has such power over himself, and he is so intelligent and so experienced that he can stop at a safe point. This moth can play with the candle and not singe its wings. I know you, my self-contained friend, and I know your boast that you can stand on the edge of a cliff and look down upon the foaming sea. And while other people's heads grow giddy, your brain is clear. And your foot is firm. You may try this experiment once too often. The deceitfulness of sin is such that it makes those who feel most secure those who are most in peril. Oh, for grace to watch and pray, lest we also become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful in that it tells you the lie that you can manage it. And so some of you may hear that and think, well, oh, Man, in a lot of ways, my heart has been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I've given myself over to some things that I never thought I would give myself over to. And so, and so what now? Well, it says back in verse 12, it says, take care. Another way to say take care is guard yourself. There, there are a lot of ways that you can guard yourself, but I'll just mention a couple. One way that you can guard yourself is avoid situations that will lead to sin. If you write down one thing I say tonight, write this down. It is much easier to avoid situations that lead to disaster than it is to resist sin. It is much easier to avoid situations that lead to disaster than it is to resist sin. For example, if you struggle with alcoholism, what is easier? Is it easier for you to not buy the six-pack at the grocery store? Or is it to say no to it when it's already in your refrigerator? Well, of course, it's easier to say no to it once you were, it's easier to say no to it in the grocery store. If you're dating and in a relationship and you're trying to set some physical boundaries, what is easier? Is it easier to be sitting on the couch with your boyfriend and girlfriend at 10 p.m. watching a movie all by yourself and in that moment saying no to sin? Or is it easier to just avoid that situation entirely? Well, of course, it's easier just to avoid that situation entirely probably the main way that you can guard yourself is by making confession a habit in your life. You need to have a few believers in your life that you can confess sin to on a regular basis. And these need to be people who are able to walk with you through your struggles. This is why we encourage DNA groups here, is because you need people who can handle the fine china of your life. For many of you, what you need the most in order to put sin to death in your life is someone that you can be honest with about your failures and someone who can speak truth into your life. If you have no one that you can be honest with and, and nobody that you're exposed to, it's gonna make healing in your life so much more difficult. As I've shared a here before, I work as a PA in gastroenterology and pretty often I'll have a patient encounter that will go something like this. Um, I'll have like a 70 or 80 year old man who will come in for some kind of GI problem and his, his wife will be with him and she's normally the one that made him come. And they'll sit down and, and I'll start asking the guy questions. And say, so, hey, you know, so, so have you been having any of this, this kind of problem? And he'll say, oh, no, I haven't been having any of that. And the wife will shoot him a look and she'll say, yes, you have. Now you tell him the truth. And and then she'll look at me and say, see, I I knew he wouldn't tell you the whole story. That's why I came to this appointment today. (laughs) And and basically what she's saying is, she's saying, hey, he's trying to help you here. And he cannot help you unless you tell him all the details of what's been going on. Honesty about what's going on in your life will lead to healing. Confession allows for others to know the details of your life so that they can speak into it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, really amazing guy, he was a German theologian in the early 1900s. He wrote this. He said, "...in confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation." Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden is made manifest. It is a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted. Do you have that kind of fellowship with anyone in your life? Do you have anyone that you can sit down with and they can talk with you about your your struggles and speak truth into your life? If you don't have that kind of relationship, I want to encourage you this week to reach out to someone someone and ask them to hold you accountable. If you're a student, reach out to one of your student leaders. If you're plugged in here and you're just trying to figure out who to go to, talk to your community group leader. You must take sin seriously because it is deceitful. And so the last point is that in order to move forward, you must fixate on the gospel. In order to move forward, you must fixate on the gospel. So before the author of Hebrews tells them to be in community and to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, he pleads with them to consider Jesus. He says, I know that Moses was a faithful man of God and we have much to learn from him, but your attention needs to be fixated on Christ and the gospel. Let's go back to verse 1. Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And so verse one says that we should consider Jesus. It says that Jesus is our apostle and high priest. So the word word apostle here, when it talks about Jesus, this is the only time in the New Testament where Jesus is referred to as the apostle. The word apostle literally means one who is sent. And so like Moses, Christ was sent to communicate God's truth to God's people. But unlike Moses... Christ himself was the truth. Like Moses, Christ was sent from God to his people, but unlike Moses, Christ was the perfect, faithful apostle. Unlike Moses, Jesus' heart was never hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Jesus never had had an action, had a thought, had a word, had a deed that was displeasing to God and deserved blame. And not only was Christ our perfect apostle, the one who came from God to us, but Christ is also our high priest. So, what a priest is, is someone who goes from the presence of a needy people into the presence of God. In the Old Testament, what a priest would do is they would go to God and make offerings to God on behalf of God's people. And as our priest, Christ is our advocate and our representative substitute. He was the priest who offered himself as a sacrifice. On the cross, he absorbed the wrath of God for us in our place. And because of that, he has made a way for us needy people to be restored to the presence of God. And so the writer of Hebrews says, since Jesus is the apostle and high priest, consider him. Consider means to fix your gaze upon. Consider means to scan closely. You know, I've had a lot of conversations with with guys over the years who have given themselves over to one sin or another. And, you know, sometimes when I talk with, with, with a buddy of mine, you know, they will not grieve over their sin at all. They'll, they'll have such an understanding of God's grace that they don't really feel bad about their sin at all. And that's not a great place to be. But more often than that, I've just been Amazed by how many young men I know, and I'm sure this applies to women as well, but how many guys I know who just are so fixated on their sin and on their shortcomings that they just cannot see God's grace. A good friend of mine in college, he had given himself over to a sexual sin and for months and months and months and months, he just beat himself up over it. He was sorry for it. He had confessed it. He had repented of it. But he would say things like, you know, I just, I just can't forgive myself for this. You know, I, he was paralyzed in the Christian life because he, he couldn't forgive himself. And I really think that there are many of you in this room who are in that same boat. You gave yourself over to something that you never thought that you would have. It might have been last week. It might have been last month. It might have even been years ago. And now you just feel paralyzed because you're so overwhelmed with guilt and shame that you just feel like you can't move forward. Many of you are wanting to move forward in the Christian life, but you can't because all you can think about is, I can't believe I did that, or I can't believe I said that, or I can't believe I watched that. This passage should be an encouragement to you to consider Jesus. I want to encourage you to take your eyes off of you and off of your shortcomings and instead consider Christ. The very next chapter is Hebrews 4. And it says this, starting in verse 14. It says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, listen to this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Some of you need to hear this today because this is good news for you. The good news for the Christian is that when you approach God... In a posture of repentance, you are met with forgiveness rather than judgment. This is great news. You cannot outsend the grace of God. You cannot outsend the grace of God. A couple of months ago, I was listening to a sermon from Paul David Tripp. He's a Christian counselor and writer, and he does a lot of things. And one of the things he was talking about was um, he was talking about what he called the cycle of grace. And he said, this cycle is what will lead to grace in your life. There's four parts to it. The first part is sight. It's seeing your sin and being made aware of it. The second part is grief. Grieving over your sin and and the pain that it causes yourself and those around you. Then the third part is confession. You know, confessing your sin to other believers, confessing your sin to God. And then the fourth part is Repentance turning from your sin and turning to God. That is the cycle that will lead to grace in your life. Sight, grief, confession, repentance. Sight, grief, confession, repentance. When you approach God in this way, you are met with grace instead of condemnation. And that is good news. And so as we wrap things up here, you know, as as we begin to head into the fall, I just have three quick questions I want you to consider now. I want you to consider it this week. The first is, where are you? Where are you? When you reflect on your relationship with God, your relationships with your friends, where are you? Is the posture of your heart right now a posture of repentance, Or is it a posture of resistance? It says in verse seven, it says, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's an invitation to repentance. And so the first question is, where are you? Second question is, why are you there? You may have some sin in your life that you need to confess. Maybe you haven't been confessing your sin to anyone for for years. Maybe you are where you are because you've lost sight of God's grace and forgiveness on your life. And so where are you? Why are you there? Then, lastly, what is your next step? What is your next step? Would you pray with me? Lord, your word says in Psalm 27, 4, it says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Lord, I thank you for the grace that you have made available to us. Father, I thank you that we can approach your throne and we are met with grace and forgiveness rather than condemnation. Lord, I just want to thank you and praise you for that. Lord, I pray that those in this room would fix their gaze upon you, that they would take their eyes off themselves, themselves. And Father, I just pray that, that everyone here would, in a new and fresh way, consider Christ. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.